Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's uh, weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. Um, my name is Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Um, we've got a treat tonight. Uh, we're speaking with Andrew Iden, who works on the staff of Representative John Lewis, but more importantly is uh, Representative Lewis's co-author, for the New York Times best-selling graphic biography, March Book One, which not only tells the, the really the hero, his, heroic story of uh, Representative John Lewis's life and, and involvement um, with the civil rights movement, but really really tells the whole story of the civil rights movement through his life. And, but uh, one of the things that um, uh, I'm really anxious to talk with Andrew about is the the role of uh, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story an historic comic book that really outlines not only that the historic Montgomery um, bus boycott, uh, but actually the a comic book that lays out the principles of nonviolent civil civil disobedience that were the bedrock of the civil rights movement and have gone on really to change the whole world. Um, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for uh, for talking with us about this uh, historic comic book. Well, thank you for having me, Calvin. It's great to be with you. Great. So, um, look, why don't you, why don't we get right to it? Um, uh, this comic book was actually turned into be in- instrumental uh, in uh, getting you to, to write uh, to, to work with uh, um, Representative Lewis to do his biography as a as a graphic novel. Um, so, tell us a little bit about how you learned about it and how it, this figures in the whole narrative. Well, I first heard about it in 2008 when I was working on the congressman's campaign and it was coming to an end and we started talking about what we were going to do after. And I said I was going to a comic convention and everybody laughed and chuckled. And the congressman said, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the movement and it was incredibly influential. And that was the first time I heard of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. And so I started, you know, you just go and you Google it, right? And right. it's available mm-hmm. online. You can you can see like piece parts here and there where it's been scanned and, and uh, you know, you can see it on the Digital Comics Museum and things like that. And um, I, I mean, I was captivated by this, you know, that there, there was a comic book. And then I asked more about it and it turns out it had helped inspire some of the earliest sit-ins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I only sort of knew about it in that general framework and, and it just seemed... You know, if if there was a comic book published in the 50s at a, at a time, you know, just right after the comic book hearings had devastated the yeah. industry when comics in some sense were almost radioactive to the public conscious, mm-hmm. um, wh- why couldn't we do that again today? Uh, especially at a time when the lessons of the civil rights movement are so important and there's so many things that we could use to apply uh, to, to situations we face today. Um, and so many people, it seems like, really don't remember those lessons. Um, no, I, I and couldn't. so, you know, I went on to to look up and, and read more. And then I was in grad school also uh, at night. Um, and it it was uh, an opportunity uh, to, to, to write your thesis about something that you were really passionate about. And mm-hmm. there was few things I could imagine that I wanted to know more about uh, than this comic book. Mm-hmm. Hey, Andrew. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine I was at Georgetown and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm pretty sure I was the first person ever to ask to write a thesis in a public policy course uh-huh. about the influence of comics, uh, hey. a particular comic. Hey, Andrew, um, let but, me let me interrupt you. But, well, can, can, before you go on, can you tell us a little bit about your own background as a comics fan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been a comics fan since I was a little kid. You know, I was like nine or ten years old when I read my first one. 
It was Uncanny X-Men 317, <laughs> right? With Banshee on the cover and the lenticular <laughs> thing from the Phalanx Covenant storyline. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, I grew up going, like, I went to Dragon Con for the first time when I was, like, 13 years old. Yeah. That's in Atlanta, um, actually, where you're from, right? And I've been right? going to shows ever since, and I just love reading comics. Mm-hmm. Great. And you're from Atlanta, right? Born and raised, yes, uh-huh. sir. Great. Um, so you're 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 studying for a graduate degree at uh, at Georgetown University in public policy. Yes, sir. And you propose to do your thesis on a little-known comic book, but a you know, but obviously a revolutionary comic book from the 1950s. And um, you convinced your advisors to that, that they should do this. Yeah, I mean, it was. You know, I think one of the opportunities when you write a thesis is to to tell a story that nobody's told before. Mm-hmm. And I was really sort of surprised that nobody had told this story. Um, and you know, it was it was a little bit of of uh, creativity mm-hmm. to get them to to make the connection between you know a comic book teaching a lesson and then actually having a real impact on the social fabric of America. Mm-hmm. And it took, you know, I think there was a few awkward meetings at first, and and I, I you know, I just wouldn't give up on the idea, um, uh-huh. because the history of it is almost as interesting as the comic book existing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it came about at a time, like I said, um, just after the comic book hearings, um, where you know comics really weren't treated with the respect that they get today, um, albeit we have a distance yet to go, um, and and. It was really interesting to me once I got into it that some of the folks who are involved in the creation of this are folks we know today as major civil rights leaders, and even Dr. King helped edit it. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. What is the Fellowship um, of Reconciliation? They are a pacifist organization based in Nyack, New York, that was incredibly influential on the early days of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of their uh, field secretaries was a guy named the Rev- was Reverend Glenn Smiley, mm-hmm. um, who uh, students of the Montgomery bus boycotts will recognize as one of the uh, uh, folks who helped Dr. King really um, use nonviolence and and uh, organize the bus boycotts. And mm-hmm. in fact, he was the first uh, white person to sit next to a black person, specifically Dr. King, mm-hmm. on the Montgomery. Uh, a public bus system and the fellowship themselves were an organization that was trying to bring attention to nonviolence and, and social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the easiest uh, correlation would be that, you know, something like the, the social gospel, right? Mm-hmm, so sure. they, they do have a, a, a somewhat religious focus, but primarily um, they, they, they're, they've been around for quite a while and um, even Baird Rustin, mm-hmm. uh, Baird Rustin was uh, uh, worked for them at one point um, in the in the fifties, and and today they're actually still around. They're still around because they were essentially the publisher of this comic book, right? Well, it was the director of publications for them who was the one who sort of carried the ball. Oh yeah, um, who was a guy, guy Alfred, Alfred Hassler. Hassler, and there was another guy, Benton. Was it Resnick? Resnick, exactly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. now he was actually a comic book guy. Uh-huh. He came from uh, a, organ- a, a company called Toby Press, mm-hmm. which was run by Elliot Kaplan, who was Al Cap's brother. 
Oh, this is right? okay. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Now we're getting so, interested because I'm um, very interested Kobe in Press, how this was uh, made and who made it. Sorry, I'm very interested in how this comic book was made and who actually produced it. Well, this is sort of this was my fascination too, right? Like, there's no there's no signature in there. Nobody right. knows who the artist is. Uh, nobody really knew who the writer was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it says produced by the Fellowship, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it maybe it was because it would have been dangerous to have your name on it at mm-hmm. the time. Um, but what happened was. Uh, Put this in some historic context, right? So the sure. hearings happened and the anti-comic book fervor sort of hit a high water mark uh, about 54, 55, right? Um, Elliot Kaplan was actually the first chairman of the group that met uh, to deal with the response uh, to the backlash mm-hmm. um, that ultimately went on to uh, create the comics code. Mm-hmm. And it was because he was running a Toby Press, which produced like uh, romance and action-adventure mm-hmm. comics. Uh, that that in the course of the hearings were actually labeled as un, unsuitable for for youth, right? They were yes. the they were some of the bad comics. They got the the negative ratings and things like that, and that ultimately drove them out of business. Um, but in the exact same offices, right, mm-hmm. uh, that Toby Press existed, um, was working was a guy named Benton Resnick, mm-hmm. uh, who had been the general manager of Toby Press. Uh-huh. And you can look in the indicia of a lot of the old Toby comics and you can see his name right there. And this is how we figured out sort of this connection. Um, it was actually Eddie Campbell who helped me like figure this out a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause he's, oh, you know, really? he's a top shelf creator and, and we <laughs> yeah, were sure. at the booth well, that's with, a pretty, uh, in that's San a pretty Diego Im- in 2012. And I, I started talking to him about it and he was like, oh, I can help. That's a pretty impressive research assistant. Right? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the like, the great Eddie nice Campbell, guy. author of, you know, um, really From Hell kind. and other great and works. So so anyway, um, Resnick, once Toby shut down, right, mm-hmm. they, they apparently reopened as something called Graphic Information Services. And if you look on the letterhead of the original letters from Resnick to Alfred Hassler at the Fellowship, it has the exact same address. Mm-hmm. That's listed in the <laughs> indicia of Toby Press Comics. Uh-huh. So it's basically like they were operating out of the same facility, doing the same sort of things, but rather than produce the comics that were that were getting you know so much negative attention, they were taking on four higher uh, assignments from nonprofits. I see. Um, Al Cap himself had done some of these. Uh, there's a Natural Disasters comic out there that you can find, mm-hmm. um, but but those are very much signed by Al Cap, right? Mm. Um, and somewhere in the midst of all this, um, Al Cap had sort of come to be the label that they associated with who produced this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't Al Cap himself. It was sort of uh, almost a marketing device in some sense because he was so well known. I see. Now, I, my, my understanding was that it was from his studio, but is that even accurate? I, I You know, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, the letters that we've uncovered – directly point to graphic information services. I see. And I think from what we've been able to piece together, it was an organization called Fund for the Republic, which was partially funded by the Ford Foundation. Mm-hmm. And it was a nonprofit set up to fund uh, social justice activities in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And um, somehow, we haven't been able to piece all of this together, but the Fund for the Republic connected Hassler and the Fellowship mm-hmm. uh, together. And the mm-hmm. fund gave the Fellowship a $5,000 grant to 
create and print this comic. Mm -hmm. um, and so the only hard evidence we have is letters between Hassler and Resnick going over the story treatment. Mm -hmm. And it seems that they worked on it together um, and, and came up – they started working on it in late 56. Mm -hmm. um, so relatively soon after, the, the bus boycotts were over. I mean this was like almost mm -hmm. immediately they started working on this. Um, and so – uh, Resnick, you know, who was actually listed in David Haydu's uh, oh, right. Tencent, Tencent Plague mm -hmm. as one of those who never worked in the comics industry mm -hmm. again. Yeah. So it was fun to find that, like, these guys were, in fact, still working in comics, albeit a slightly a different, different uh, type of, of comic. Now, was this real? Was this idea to do a essentially a, a social justice comic book, was this embraced by um, – Everyone in the civil rights movement at the time or the people that were close in, did they all think that this was a good idea? Well, that's what's so amazing about this. We found letters from A. Philip Randolph, Martin Luther King, um, and, and, and perhaps most notably Will Campbell, who, if you read March, is actually a character in there because he was working actively in Nashville. Mm -hmm. um, they were all encouraging him to do this because they thought it was so important to find a way to reach young people and to mm -hmm. teach them about nonviolence. In fact, uh, Will Campbell was at the meeting in which SCLC was founded uh -huh. and the next day wrote a letter to Hassler saying, don't tell anybody, but we've just created this organization and I think this organization will be very supportive of the comic book and can utilize it in their own work. And then, of course, SCLC and Dr. King went on to actually write an endorsement that went into some of the comic books and some of the advertising materials uh, when they were soliciting it to the various peace groups. Awesome. So how much hands – so how hands-on – well, obviously they endorsed it. How hands-on was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in the actual production of the book? Dr. King actually read an advanced copy of the script before it went into final production. And then sent a letter to Hassler uh, apologizing for taking so long because it, he, he was delayed <laughs> by the birth of his first son, um, <laughs> offering his own edits, saying, oh, cool. you know, I think this you may need to change this character. It was actually such and such who said this um, and and saying, you know, he was really proud of what they did uh, and that, that he really he really uh, appreciated. It. He thought they did a good job. I love it. Martin Luther King, comics editor. Right. <laughs> I'm loving this. So, um, okay, great. So uh, they're all working on this. Uh, it's they've embraced the notion of a comic book. Uh, um, Martin Luther King is 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 editing it. They've gotten the grant to produce it. Um, you know, what was? Do you have an idea what kind of print run went out and how did they distribute it? Well, you know, at a time that, uh, it was in the middle of an anti-comics hysteria. Copy print run. Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? It was 250,000 copies. 250,000 copies? Right. By today's standards, I mean, that's a huge print run. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, it was to be distributed not just here in the United States, but all around the world. They solicited it in, you know, Peace News and, and various uh, Christian publications around the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Europe. And, and um, eventually it, it landed in South Africa and... Um, later in Latin America. But um, w one of the things that was cool about this process when they did it is that um, y you found that uh, 
the people who were responding to it were not what they expected, right? Mm-hmm. So like the first the first round of mailings they did, they accidentally sent to a group of white ministers who <laughs> who, who like wrote back like these nasty letters I like can't... we don't want your comic book, like get this out of here. It's like um, sort of negative but, focus. But then they group. sent it yeah. to uh <laughs> Uh, some more Southern and like African-American churches and schools and things like that. Um, and they really embraced it, but it wasn't approved by the comics code. So they couldn't distribute it through traditional means. Uh-huh. And so what happened was you had a group of ministers that we now know as quite famous individuals from the movement who took the comic book on something that they called a reconciliation tour. Um, where they traveled all around the South. I think they did eight states in like four or five, maybe six months. Mm. Um, and they would give these nonviolent workshops. And we're talking about Glenn Smiley, mm-hmm. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, yes, well. um, and Jim Lawson, who sure. mm-hmm. you know later went on to, to train the, the uh, Nashville student movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right away, they were getting a response to this. Jim Lawson actually told me a story where he went out to the Midwest in early 1958 mm-hmm. uh, and used the comic book in uh, some nonviolent workshops that directly motivated the students to go and have some of the earliest sit-ins. Um, now, of course, they didn't get the same media attention that others did later, mm-hmm. um, but it was almost as if as soon as they had this comic book, you could see the impact on young people mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and having it as something that they could hold in their hands and take with them later um, – to really understand not just uh, sort of the, the I guess, uh, you see these things in sort of the abstract, but when you put it in their, their hands and you show them a story sure. of how it worked, followed by like a descriptive lesson plan, um, it really sunk in and it mm-hmm. became something that motivated them. So was it primarily word of mouth or did the, did the comic book get, get media uh, at the time? It didn't get so much like mainstream media. Yeah. It was... Uh, even even media smattering even of, media attacking it. it it was like christian publications peace publications uh-huh. um sort of that underground network of uh activists that were emerging from the early days of the civil rights movement that was primarily where they received uh press but beyond that you know it was word of mouth it was mailings it was sort of the most uh grassroots distribution method um far more i mean it almost in some weird sense it was like the the predecessor to Kickstarter, you know, I yeah. mean, like this was them just doing like mailings out to people saying, "Hey, we need you to buy a lot so we can so we can make sure. this print run," and they did. Uh, really amazing, um, and and but still, the the name of the artist and really who wrote it, it's still it, we we've never been able to nail that down. Well, so the artist is, you know, there's some theories. Uh-huh. Um, I think. There's sort of the idea that it is in the style of Dan Barry. Uh-huh. Yes. I would I, love I, to have a conversation with his brother, Cy, who mm-hmm. I'm, from what I've been told is still alive, but mm-hmm. I haven't been able to track him down um, because they were working together at that time. Interesting, because it's a really beautifully illustrated comic. Oh, it's beautiful. It's really well done. And, and if you look, there's actually a first draft of the cover. Uh, that, that's been found that's a little bit different than the cover that, that you see on the finished version. Uh-huh. Um, and it's funny because it has the story of how that cover changed is very similar to how they changed the Martin Luther King Memorial. Um, oh, re- oh, right. Oh, really? Yeah. The first was cover there a they misquote put together on the cover? <laughs> staring directly at you, right? Uh-huh. 
Um, and it was a little bit more, uh, uh, I don't want to say confrontational, mm. but it was definitely more direct. I see. Um, and, and it's, it's, they had almost the same criticism of the original sculpt of the, uh, Dr. King Memorial, uh, when they, when that was proposed. And it seems like people are like a little bit afraid <laughs> to look Dr. King in the eye. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if, if you don't have the moral backbone, <laughs> It right. might be kind of tough. <laughs> so uh, really interesting. Um, but uh, one of the things that I also want to ask you about, and and this is where, I mean, I have been aware of the comic for many years, though not knowing a lot about it, certainly not knowing the, the facts that you're bringing to light here. But uh, I, I became aware of it again, obviously, during the Arab Spring. Right. But but really, this comic book has traveled around the world, and the well, Eric Spring yeah. sort of was sort of the latest place that it had had found a really wonderful and embracing audience. Well, almost immediately after its publication in the United States, it was sent to South Africa uh-huh. um, during the you know as they were fighting sure. against the apartheid regime, mm-hmm. and it was banned there because it was so incendiary. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Shortly Non-violent. thereafter, yes. it was translated and actually redrawn, uh, and uh-huh. and printed in Uruguay and uh-huh. distributed from there. Um, and and so then it was used. Also, the Spanish version was used. Um, from what from what I've what I've heard, it was used in Southern California during the workers' rights movement as well. Uh-huh. But the the Spanish version's history is still sort of remaining to be uh, uncovered. Mm-hmm. But then it was also translated into Vietnamese oh, and really? used uh, in the late 60s um, as part of the peace movement there in response to the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you sort of fast forward uh, to what Dalia Zieta did most yes. recently, um, translating the comic into Arabic and Farsi and distributing it in Egypt uh, all the way up into the days and weeks leading up to the revolution in Tahrir Square. Mm-hmm. So it's really uh, it's really sort of breathtaking the scope uh, of the comic book and and to a comic book fan um, it's it's got to be uh, you know inspirational just to see I mean what all of us know all the time even though we love the pure entertainment value of comics we know that this medium can really do anything it's it's limited only by the imagination and the skills of the artists involved. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's funny. If you go back and read some of the, the testimony from the comic book hearings, mm. I, I don't think you can walk away from that with any doubt that comic books can be influential. Mm-hmm. I think really what was being measured at that point was whether that influence was being used for positive or negative purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, I think maybe our definitions have changed um, from then to now. Um, but well, you know, I thought some of your comments you were making uh, when I, I saw you speak at the Small Press Expo, um, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, I thought you really made some interesting points, um, particularly when you were talking about um, the anti-comics hysteria of the 1950s. Uh, which was going on at the same time this 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 one this amazing comic book was being created, um, how it affected the people, and I think you were saying, you know, this, you know, it wasn't that this was just a bad thing, this, you know, this took away people's livelihood, it destroyed people's lives, and you you talked about, uh, you know, being able to hold up 
March book one, you know, on the Senate floor or or have it now on Capitol Hill as, you know, kind of coming full circle and in maybe in some small way writing, you know, writing a wrong here. Well, I think, you know, I think what happened for us, it, it was actually the Wednesday before uh, the San Diego Comic-Con started, mm-hmm. right? So it was really like this special moment as we're like getting ready to go to uh, opening night, debut the comic book, sell it for the first time, and show everybody what we've been working on all these years. And Patrick Leahy, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the same committee that held those hearings in the 50s, ah. holds up a copy of March and says to everybody in the room and all the press, all five of my grandchildren are going to be reading this. <laughs> and, I mean, you want to talk about the distance traveled for yeah. comics. Yeah. To go from the, the hearing, the, 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 the committee that tried to destroy and successfully destroyed many careers mm-hmm. and many lives, to now not just, uh, you know, not opposing it, but championing a comic book, a graphic novel. Um, it, was, it was really like one of those unbelievable moments where you're like, Okay, we 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 we've we've fixed this. Now, I mean, I know Congress doesn't fix much lately, but <laughs> but maybe sure. this one thing they're ready to 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 accept that we've moved on, that we've we've come this great distance and and we're to a place now where we can all agree that this is a medium of of beautiful art, of beautiful creativity um that has the potential to have a real and profound impact in a positive way on on our youth and on our society. I know it's really it's really thrilling. And on, on a on a separate note, I think you also you uh, at the Small Press Expo you're talking a little bit about uh, maybe on a on on a smaller level. It's kind of allowed uh, comics fans on Capitol Hill to come out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess. Um, by doing this, I've sort of become the de facto comic book guy on yeah. the hill. <laughs> I, I've um, been there, man. I know what you're and, talking about. Go on. <laughs> well, and, and maybe it's, you know, I think for people, it's it's a little bit different than like, you know, the comic book guy on The Simpsons or something like that. Um, <laughs> well, we can redefine that character. That's what we're, some of us are trying to do anyway. <laughs> right. Like, it's like we don't have to exist in that stereotype anymore. Um, and people come up to me all the time and they say things like, you know, I've always been a comics fan. Um, and it's, it's really great to see, you know, somebody like John Lewis embracing the medium and that now also with something like March, they have something that they can show people, um, in the political world yeah. that, you know, everybody's sort of taken aback. It's, it's surprising to them. They, they couldn't understand, uh, at first why a member of Congress would do that. But then we tell them the story of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story, and we tell them the potential and the impact uh, of what that did and what we could do again. Um, and it's like it's okay to be a comics fan, you know. It's like we're we're finally like legitimate. We're readers, you know. We're not we're not just the geeks or, or the maladjusted. Yeah. Um, we can we can be fans uh, of this beautiful medium. Um, and and I and I people tell me this all the time. Um, it's really it's it's cool, you know. It's great, and and it's surprising the people who do tell you these things. Uh, Jake Tapper, uh, oh, yeah. when we went and did an interview <laughs> at his studio, uh, you know, kind of really geeked out on it. Oh, it was great! And I love. I mean, it. there's just there's a ton of staffers on the Hill who are fans, but 
who wouldn't otherwise have said anything about being fans because for so long it did have a, a stigma attached to it. But now, now they can be open about it. I mean, Congressman Lewis even had other members of Congress asking uh, if they could talk to me or talk to him about how he did that because they might want to write one too. Ah. Now, I'm not sure I really want to help any other member particularly do this. I don't think anybody else really has the story to tell. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to me and it's special that they would make that change and that they would um, that their views would change so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, it's uh, the power of the comics medium, uh, you know, when when we can break through these barriers. So who knows? Maybe one day there'll be a capital Comic Con. Um, who knows? Anything's possible. <laughs> we got to we got to get a, a comic book club together on the hill. Right? I'm loving and it. You can have Patrick Leahy, Senator Leahy, be the chairman. Right. You <laughs> have you John go. Lewis be the the uh, <laughs> vice chairman, and then you know we can get all sorts of. Hey, I think you, there's something there. Yeah, who never know? Who knows? Might even be some cosplay going on. Anyway, right. look, <laughs> Andrew, I, this is a perfect place for us to end. Uh, I've been talking with Andrew Iden, who, uh, when he's not um, operating as what the communications director and press secretary. Oh no, that was during when you were during the campaign. What, yeah, do you do, campaign. what do you do now do, for John Lewis? Uh, telecom and tech policy I see. and like okay. social media. All right. When so you're... I've got a little bit of policy and a little bit of press, but it's the digital press. And so it's, it's basically they put all the nerd roles into one. Yeah, I can see it. Well, when you're not doing that, you're the co-author of Congressman John Lewis's New York Times bestselling graphic biography, March Book One, from Top Shelf Publishers. Out now. Go to a store. Buy it. It's really a great story. Beautiful uh, artwork by beautiful and gripping artwork uh, by Nate Powell. Um, uh, Andrew, thanks so much for talking with more to come. Well, thank you for having me, Calvin. It was great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Heidi McDonald of PW's Comics World's More to Come. I am live at the Baltimore Comic Con, and uh, right now I am talking to Adam P. Nave, the writer of Amelia Cole and the Unknown Worlds, uh, as well as, actually, what else are you working on now, Adam? You're a very busy guy. Artful Daggers for Monkey Brain. Um, I have Artful Daggers from Monkey Brain 2, which I'm co-writing with Shoni Williams. Amelia Cole, of course, which I'm co-writing with DJ Kirkbride, and we have uh, me and DJ have a Dark Horse miniseries starting in late November. Wow! Called so, Never Ending. So you're you're pretty busy right now. Not busy enough. Uh, okay. Now I'm I'm interested in Amelia Cole because you originally did this for Monkey Brain, correct? Yeah. And we still do it for Monkey right. Brain. Right. So it started out last year when Monkey Brain launched. Right. We were one of the launch titles in July. And now it's just been collected by IDW. Right. So how is the sure. model, I mean, how do you think the monkey brain model has worked out for you, which is it's, digital serialization, essentially? It's, it's, we're guinea pigs. You know, we're, we're the canary in the coal mine. But it's fascinating. Like, just from a publishing point of view, it's fascinating. Because, you know, you have the digital first stuff, so you're engaging in a slightly different audience. Your average Wednesday, everyday, you know, comic buyer doesn't know who you are. You are invisible unless they know comicsology. But you have all the social media leverage that is suddenly like the, the only thing you need to do in life. And when you move to print, you're trying to suddenly justify an entire trade that came out of nowhere as far as people are concerned. So it's, just, it's been a very interesting swim, you know, just trying to change tracks back and forth. Um, but it's definitely where things are headed. Right, right. So, I mean, do you think 
Now, one of the things Amelia Cole has going for it, besides, um, you know, an engaging adventure story, is the art is really amazing yeah. and, uh, you know, very stunning. But that's also, what's by um, Nick Brokenshire, but it's also in kind of what I call the modern style, which is more European influenced, I guess. But, um, but it seems like, uh, but it, it does seem like the digital model is a really good way for, for, be, for artists to get a following also. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Nick is, in fact, you know, Scottish, so oh, well, there, you go. there is a British influence. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it lets all of us get a following. There's minimal risk. There's no printing, there's no distribution fees, there's no returns, and it's a really low buy-in. So it lets people try stuff that they wouldn't normally try. It lets us play and do books that would not survive in the traditional market. You know, we're doing a non-superhero female lead character who wears actual clothes and is of an actual weight and size, that doesn't fly in the direct market very often. <laughs> right. But you go over to the digital end and you have people who don't buy comics. And they don't know that this isn't what you should buy. They right. just like it. Right, right. So, um, how, so you just launched Artful or okay, now like I forget. Ago? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, recent. Yes. Fairly recent. So, how is that? How has that series been? Been um, uh, received? It's been received pretty well. It has, you know, this buy-in of essentially where the conceit is we're doing a sequel to Mark Twain to Connecticut Yankee. It's, it's 50 years after this. You know, we've dropped all this technology in, in ancient England and what happens next. So there is a weird conceit. But it also has a very quick elevator pitch, which in something like digital helps immensely. Um, so the reception has been interesting. You know, Andrew Losk, uh, our artist who's in Spain, actually, this is his first comic. So we're experimenting pretty much every month with how we're doing some of the coloring, how he's doing some of the art. So it becomes a fun book to play. Right, right. Um, I mean, what what you've been writing comics uh, for a while now, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, how how has your career evolved? I mean, I was talking to somebody yesterday who points out that it's easier to write a screenplay, break into movies, than it is breaking into comics as a writer. Uh, I would buy that, um, <laughs> but it's not have as much fun. Yeah, right, right. I mean, that's you know, as far as your career evolving, it's somewhere sort of a Pokemon, I think, at this point, but. I don't know, it's endless fun. You know, I don't know what I'm going to be working on tomorrow. I I get to lie to children um, and pay for it, which is awesome. But yeah, you just you can do whatever you want. Right, right, right. Well, cool. Well, congratulations on Amelia Call. It's a Thank you. beautiful book and a lot, lot of fun. So, I'm just out from IDW. So. Yep. Thank cool. you. Thanks so much, Adam. Hi, uh, this is Heidi McDonald at Baltimore Comic Con, and I'm with Laura Lee Gulledge. Uh, the author of Page by Page and her new book, Will and Wit, both published by Amulet. And uh, are these are your YA, or would you call them YA books? Or they definitely what? fall in the YA category, but I wrote them thinking about grown-ups so that they can enjoy it as well. So it doesn't talk specifically about only 16-year-old problems. They're more bigger problems, like about you know identity and confidence, vulnerability, and creativity and all that stuff. Right, right. Uh, but what is Will and Wit about, your new one? Will and Wit is set in Virginia, where I'm from, which was very fun to draw. Uh, it's about a character named Will, short for Wilhelmina. And she's like me, we sort of want to have more face time with our friends, so it takes place at the end of their summer before their senior year. And she wants to have a lot of time with her friends, and she gets her wish in the form of a hurricane, Whitney, that comes through town and knocks out the power. So everyone is outside, they 
they work together on an arts carnival. But the bad news is that she's scared of the dark, so she has to deal with her shadows, which in the story are personified, so oh. they are alive, sort of like Peter Pan's shadow running around the wall, wow. you know, and taunting her. So, wow, this is a very conceptual book, actually, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a, well, she's a control freak, and there's a hurricane, so it's chaos, and it's about change, because it's... I feel like a lot of people relate to YA because they're in transition points in their life. Right. So a lot of it is about trying to figure out what you want to be doing next or trying to come to terms with something ending and something else beginning. Because to grow up, you have to let go of who you were to be something new. Right. Which I think a lot of people relate to. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, that's absolutely the, you know, the appeal of a lot of the fiction, especially for young readers. And you find that book that kind of, you know, encapsulates some of the things you fear. And then the book becomes your best friend, you know? Well, it's definitely about fear. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, as I walked up here, you were talking to a librarian, and uh, it sounds like your books kind of fit into the, like, you know, the younger comics for younger readers or comics and libraries. I mean, what kind of response have you gotten from, from readers to your books? I've gotten really good responses, because I used to teach middle school. So to me, I, I target the, the people who are like myself, that we have big imaginations, but maybe... We're not the most outgoing, socially uh, smooth individuals, but and we feel like that maybe there's something wrong with us, but I feel like that, no, we're just introverts, and our imagination, it's a gift. It, we, we're really good at observation and, and self-knowledge and creative expression, and we're sensitive. And a lot of kids, they, they used to draw, and then they stop. And in middle school is when a lot of those kids stop making art right. or stop being passionate about music or stop writing their little short stories. So that's why YA is great, because I can target those kids, and it's all my characters are creative in different ways, sort of like Jim Henson's characters. They all just want to make right, stuff right, and right. support each other in making stuff. Yeah. So mine are the same way. So one is a cook, one's a puppeteer. Um, the main character, Will, makes lamps. They all, they all make things with their hands and express themselves in different ways, because... We really need that, because otherwise we'll all go crazy. Well, uh, Laura, you've expressed yourself in a lot of ways. You've had a lot of different artistic followings, right? Uh, you've done body painting. You've done scenic design. What, what are you? What are your summary? What's on that resume? <laughs> uh, well, I, I've looked at like being an art scientist. That in order to figure out how art works, I need to try a lot of different disciplines. Because I hate how I was told you have to pick one thing and pigeonhole yourself fit into a little category because I don't think creativity works like that right so but I couldn't just say it so I'm like okay I'll just show you guys so I started by working in sketchbooks for four years just working on getting in the habit of doing art on a weekly basis and then I started working on I did illustrations very metaphorical sort of magical realism and then I got into doing murals and scenic painting and some installation event production body painting street art um, video pieces. Uh, I've even done like some radio collaboration. <laughs> I'm turning the new book into a musical. Wow. Um, yeah. It's basic because I find that a key to creativity is a cross-disciplinary approach to bring in influences from different visual languages because they're all connected. Um, so it sounds like intimidating, like it's a lot of things, but it's really not. Right. You know? But you, uh, but you feel and you like learn different things from each one. Do you too. feel like comics are, are, you know, among your favorites of these, or definitely? Uh -huh. I spent a decade exploring all these different things and trying them on, like from street art. 
uh, they were the artists that were the ones who put themselves out there the most. Like they just like a message in a bottle. You're just gonna put a little bit of yourself on the wall and just trust whatever happens happens. Versus the doing set design, it's about three dimensional world building. Right. Um, so comics, I feel like, is a great combination of all the different disciplines I've explored because it has a, a written. The written narrative, of course, because being able to actually write is so important. But kids, they don't really know how to write, write. Right. Yeah, because I'd like, go on that. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I mean, you know, as a teacher also, uh, yeah, you know, I, I will confess here, Laura and I have had a few conversations at parties that went out a long time, so uh, <laughs> there might have been a few Guinness involved in both of them, but uh, yeah, we, we could have a whole... Uh, we could have a whole podcast that was just, yeah, yeah, all this stuff, uh, and perhaps we will at some point. Uh, just uh, quickly though, I mean, this is um, you know, I, I don't uh, often ask. Well, I do, but it's like one of those stock questions. But for you, I feel the answer is very unknown. Like, so what's the dream project for Laura Lee Gulledge? Oh, the dream project. Uh, well, yes, my lifelong project is curriculum. Oh. Like that's the big project. You, I started off in education, and when I left education, I knew that I would come back. So that's always been the goal. But first, I need to go out and turn myself into an artist. I need to figure out how art really works. Uh, and also, because my lessons, they're almost like art. I mean, they're art in themselves, because that's how I approach them. Uh, because it's easier to teach through narrative or to teach through something that's beautiful, to teach through right, something that's right, funny, right. like, because art, because I'm an instrumentalist. Right, like, right, right. Uh, so are you, are, are you going back into teaching, or are you, are you considering that, or in, 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 uh, combining them somehow? Or? Yes, but not in the, the K-12 sort of situation. I'm turning the new book into a musical, so basically it's a, a model for local, to build community in places that don't have art or music oh, programs. Okay. How to fund it themselves, what if your school doesn't have a theater, so how to design the, the, your story so that the audience moves between locations. So that's one aspect. Another is um, I'd like to do like an actual workbook based on my years and years of doing sort of art therapy on myself okay. and design like a workbook so people could use it in retirement homes or after school programs. Basically I'm sort of avoiding the, the public education <laughs> art system because I could just spend my whole career hitting my head against that wall. Yeah. So my energy is best used to, to make new models. So make, create new ways that for people to connect through making right. stuff and uh, yeah. So wow. it's, so that's the big, big dream. Wow. Well, there's a big, project. there's a big dream and a lot, a big project, uh, a lot going on here. But in the meantime, uh, Will and Wit just out from uh, Amulet and Laura Lee Village. Well, Laura, thank you so much thank for taking a few moments to talk. Hi, this is Heidi McDonald, live at Baltimore Comic Con. Uh, now I'm sitting here with Chris Somney, a amazing artist, uh, award-nominated artist, uh, fast-rising star. Of comics, um, and Chris, what are you? He's he's wincing, but it's so true. Uh, Chris, what are you working on, right? What kind of books are? What works are you doing right now? Are you had some stuff come out right this month, right? Um, yeah, uh, last week uh, I think it was last week. I uh, had uh, Batman Black and White number one. I had a short in that that Howard Mackey wrote. Um, a few months back, there was Adventures of Superman Digital that Jeff Parker wrote, um, and then it just recently saw print. 
Um, but all the rest of the time is Daredevil. Yeah. Uh, Daredevil, Daredevil, Daredevil. With oh, the, and, and covers for Shadow Year One. That's that's right. Uh, but all, Daredevil is with Mark Wade, the uh, the claimed run. Yeah, the. Uh, <laughs> the incomparable Mark Wade. Yes, yes. He's sitting very near us, so we have to be careful what we say. But uh, uh, your run on Daredevil uh, is is quite acclaimed, and the, the trades collections have also been doing very well, uh, too. I mean, the book's definitely got this really strong following. Oh, it's, it's got legs. I think people have, you know, glommed on to, you know, a, a new version of Daredevil. It's, well, sort of a throwback, but... At least it's a, a breath of fresh air from a lot of the dark, you know, Daredevil crying in the rain stuff that we've seen over the, the past 20 years or so. Well, your style is a little bit more, I don't know, throwback. I mean, what, what I don't know, do you think of yourself in a school or a, a type, or how do you categorize yourself? Uh, well, I mean, I, I'll take throwback. Um, I, I'm influenced by a lot of the older guys. A lot of newspaper strips uh, are on my shelves. Um, I, I don't know where I'd classify myself. I... I, I I'm more of a cartoonist, I think, than a lot of folks. Um, I like acting. I like the characters to act on the page. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Frank Robbins and Alex Toth. And oh wow, you're talking really old school. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know Alex Raymond. Um, I like uh, you know the old stuff where I feel like a lot of stuff now is just influenced by a person before him, before him, before him, and it's just sort of been watered down over the years, and I'm trying to go back as far as I can to the, the old, 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 left, left, the old stuff. That's well, where what, I... Well, what is, uh, what's like your main concern in drawing a character like Daredevil? Um, I mean, you know, obviously he has mad many great artists work on him, but I mean, for you, like, with working in Mark Scripps, what, what, what do you have to keep in mind as you, as you draw the book? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. It's really hard to, like, to not think about all of the great guys who have worked on the book. Um, but really, I just try and push that all out of my mind and just think about drawing the best story I can. Uh, Mark is such an amazing writer. I get a picture in my head as I'm reading the script, and I just try and draw that and try to ignore how huge a talent Mazzucchelli is and just, like, not think about his Daredevil. I just try and make my Daredevil as close as I can to to whatever's in my head. Well, what kind of, uh, I mean, did you always want to draw superheroes? Uh, is that what you wanted to draw? Yeah, yeah, ever since I was five or six, you know, I, I picked up a Batman comic and I got hooked. Uh, that's all I wanted to do. Um, you know, career day would come around and they'd say, what do you want to do? And I didn't know what a comic book artist was, so I'd say, like, a cop, because <laughs> Batman's friends with cops, you know, like, um, but yeah, it's, that's all that I've ever wanted to do. Um, I started going to conventions uh, when I was about 10, and started doing portfolio reviews and just anybody who would come to St. Louis I would ask them what they do and how they do it and I would talk to writers and inkers and letterers anybody who would come to town I just wanted to figure out what comics were and how they were made and uh, and I got my first book published at 15 wow and it's, and it's all been downhill from there what was what was that book um, it was Big Bang Comics for Image. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And which was a throwback title. Yeah, actually, but I was way much. into manga at the time. So it was a throwback 60s title. And some punk kid drawing half-assed, you know, manga-ish. Right. I forget the name of the guy who, who did Big Bang Comics. but uh, uh, Gary Carlson. Gary Carlson, right. So he had created this whole kind of imaginary old comics mm -hmm. company. And he had a whole bunch of artists. It was an anthology of, of yeah. stories from this old-timey, old-timey-wimey. Um, did you, I mean, you're breaking in. I mean, there's a lot of talk now about house style. 
And uh, I mean, you know, when I say you're fast rising, I mean, your your name. I mean, not to blow smoke, but I mean, your name always comes up when people are saying, "Oh, who who do you really like now?" It's like, "Oh, that's you know, I really like Kasami. I've been looking at his stuff." And but there's a lot of house styles at, at, at Marvel and DC, and and uh, I mean, so did you find it difficult to break into this uh, field this way? I mean, did you get a lot of resistance to your style? Did they want to change you? Or? Um, there wasn't really resistance, but whenever I did portfolio reviews. Basically, I would get at an editor who would say, we really like it, we think you're good, we don't know what we would do with you. Um, part of that was because what I had for samples was Capote in Kansas, which I was drawing in like like 2005, right. and that's all I had because that's what I was working on all through the night. I was working a day job at Borders, and then at night I was working on Capote. So I didn't have superhero samples. I'd come up to them with like... A, a little guy wandering around Kansas interviewing people. Well, right. So, this, uh, did, uh, actually, I do remember Capote in Kansas. That is yeah. the first time I saw your name, and that's exactly what it is. And who was the the writer on? Uh, Andy Parks. Uh, Andy Parks, right? He had written this graphic novel that was about Truman Capote going to Kansas. Right. And and it's really a delightful book. Yeah, uh, that was I, is all about his research for In Cold Blood. Right. So you uh, right? He was researching In Cold Blood. So you go into you know the Spider Man editor and say, yeah. here is a drawing of Truman Capote interviewing someone. Yeah. It was like, here's Truman Capote <laughs> to Nick Lowe, the X Men editor, and he was like, yeah, I don't know what we would do with you. I mean, clearly it's not an X Men book, but they were like, you know, you can draw people in suits, but uh, can you do other stuff? Um, so it was a bit, a bit of a uphill battle during that time, but it's it's all worked out since then. Right, right. Well, that's great. I, I know you also worked on the Rocketeer, didn't you? Yep. Um, I, I signed on to do Rocketeer and Daredevil at the same time. Right. And um, how did that work out for you there, Chris? It worked out well. <laughs> um, it was they're both with Mark. I mean, it could have worked. It could have turned out horribly. Um, if, if if Mark had been hard to work with, but he's he's been a dream. Oh, so, wow. so yeah, it's a we have a perfect partnership. So what's uh, what's your next dream project besides working with Mark? Oh, I'm just happy to be working with Mark right now. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't have a, a dream project right. right now. You can't dream even beyond that. No, it's, it's fulfilled. As is. No, it's it is a great book, and uh, it's got a lot of. Uh, a lot of fans who even don't read superhero comics, usually they say there's the Hawk, uh, Hawkeye and Daredevil, the two books that they read for people like myself who don't read superhero <laughs> comics. So, uh, but great. Well, congratulations, Chris. Well, and thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, this is Heidi McDonald again, uh, still live at Baltimore Comic Con, and now I am with Nick Brokenshire. How do you say your name, actually? Brokenshire. Oh, see, I was doing the uh, clipped version, but it's actually Nick Brokenshire. Uh, the artist on Amelia Cole and the Unknown Worlds. Now, Nick, uh, obviously, uh, you are from Scotland. You live there now. Uh, I no longer live in Scotland, but now I live in England with my wife, Victoria. Uh, right. um, so not far from Scotland. Okay. Well, to us Americans, that's all the same place anyway. So well, it, it basically <laughs> is. You know. Well, it's a, it's a short it's a short tool down the train, I suppose. Um, now, how did you get involved with Amelia Cole? I had put the word out that I was looking to collaborate with some writers um, I'd been working on my own stuff and uh, basically I put some things on some forums and a couple of people approached me and I approached some others and then I was put in touch with Adam and DJ and then instantly we just started to, we clicked, you know, we clicked and then the ideas started going backwards and forwards and within weeks, you know, this was on, on, you know, on track. So. What were you doing before? I was working on my own book called Flick and Barnaby, um, 
which is on hold for now, but um, it's still there, it's still in the pipe, you know. But um, yeah, that was it really, and working. Right. Well, I mean, uh, the the comics industry in England is, is quite a bit different from here. There aren't really that many native publishers at all, right? No. So, I mean, how did you like? Have you always worked in comics, or did you work in illustration, or? Yeah, I mean, I started out as an illustrator, but I've always liked comics, honestly. Um, I think I, I was never published through a, you know, a publisher. I just put all my work online, so through my website, that's how people saw saw my work. Um, I only really decided to to push for comics in the last, you know, ten years. Oh, okay, so, right. Um, but previous to that, I was just a regular illustrator. <laughs> if there is such a thing. Right. Well, I find now, especially in America, uh, I mean, the illustration field is very difficult. Yes. And it seems uh, here that comics have kind of been rising. And illustration, unfortunately, has been going down just in terms of the outlets where you can get paid to do it are yes. so few and far between. So it's I, I've often say that it's illustrator's loss is comics gain because we have so many fantastic artists who... Uh, in, the, in the past uh, would have just been like, oh, I wish I could do comics, they're so free, and but I must draw this cover for you know, Vanity Fair for $10,000, so alas. <laughs> no, it's, it's a weird balance. I mean, illustration can be very lucrative, but the digital age has kind of put a, put a bit of a yeah. you know, stomper on it because so many people can just knock stuff up very, very quickly, and so it's been very hard to get illustration work, you've got to really, really establish yourself, which right. is true, I suppose, in any, in any field, right, but right. Um, I think with me, the, co the comics thing wasn't because I wasn't enjoying illustration, it's just because I love comics, you know, that's right. why I got into well, it. Well, what's not to love? Um, who, do you, who do you look at? I mean, what, what uh, your style is very illustrative, it's, it's uh, you know, it has a lot of different influences, and I find so many new, unique artists coming out now who just... You know, it's not like, oh yeah, he draws like, you know, Neil Adams or yeah. or he draws like Paul Pope. I mean, everybody's really getting these very quirky, individualized styles now. I mean, mm -hmm. who are some people who you, you look at or really admire? I um, I, I love like the Hernandez brothers. Um, I grew up on like uh, Mobius and Hernandez brothers and a lot of the indie stuff, you know, Peter Bag and stuff like that. Um, so I think, my, as far as my style is concerned, I try and, for better or worse, straddle this kind of indie stroke mainstream line. So I, I, I use slightly stylized figures, perhaps like, like Mobius might, but then I like to use like the, the, the reality of Hernandez Brothers. I don't know if it quite works, but I, I try it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it looks, it looks very striking. I really enjoy looking at it. What, um, what for Amelia Cole? What, what's the main thing that you, you know, you main concern in drawing, drawing it? Um, making her seem believable as a, as a regular looking girl, because um, she's only, she's five foot two, regular build. She's not got pneumatic breasts, you know. She's just a regular person. So. It's, you'd be surprised how difficult it is to, to draw regular people. <laughs> you know, um, we're so we're so ingrained with the way people are supposed to look in comics that we sometimes can get carried away with the design. So it's, it's very much about restraint for me. You know? um, that's the main thing. Make her real. 
Right, right. Well, she because she does have some crazy adventures too. She does. Yes, she does. <laughs> so then you get to cut loose. Well, yeah. I mean, oh yeah, monsters, all that good stuff. That's in there. Yeah. But we've got to make her relatable, basically. Right, right. Well, that's that's interesting because um, I, I think that's what I'm talking about in the style that I just see so many people working in. It is very much based on on that element, actually, that the characters are becoming much more. I think it's, you know, McCloud had his whole theory about how you relate to the characters. Yes. And that, you know, what that magic sweet spot is where people really find them, you know, endearing. Yeah, where they connect with yeah, their, like, yeah. iconography in their heads. Right, yeah, right, yeah right. I mean, I, to, well, to be honest, I, it's still evolving for me. I, I think I'm still trying to find it, you know. Uh, for me, every, every issue is a brand new set of <laughs> things that I've learned, you know. Right. So, and even with character like Amelia who's seemingly very simple I, I keep learning new little things that will try and hopefully communicate what how, you know what kind of a character she is it's subtle very very subtle things like you know a change of angle on the eye or whatever and that, that I find that quite thrilling which may seem quite boring <laughs> to other people but you know no well it's true right because continuing characters you know, it's like with peanuts, you know, they're yes. the most simple. Like, comics can convey, like, the depth of emotion with just the change of a line sometimes. So that's really the essence. So. Well, the character Lemmy, who is her, like, companion, right. he can't speak and he, he has no facial muscles. Um, and yet he's quite a complex character. And it, the way we try and convey the, the emotion of him is purely through his body posture, you know. And um, I think... That, that's quite a challenge because right. sometimes he can be alert, sometimes he can be, you know, uh, upset, you know, and then you've got to show it on a, on a completely blank face, you know. Right. That's right. another challenge. Yeah. Well, that is the joy of comics. It's uh, not of one drawing, you have to draw 85 things on one page. That's true, that's true <laughs> as well. And, well, sorry, that's Mom. great. Well, thank you so much, Nick. It's really nice to get to meet you and, you too, uh, and uh, talk about the book. So thanks. Thank you very much.